Welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most. Because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I'm your host, Mark. Enjoy the conversation with Yogi Zorananda. Why do I care about this? Why do I care about that? Because you're brought into such a potent other world where in that world, none of that exists. And even the beings in that world will be like, what the fuck are you doing with all that shit? (laughs) You know? Yeah, man. And... Almost upon immediately falling asleep, I woke back up in my bed, but I didn't realize that I woke up into a dream because it was so lucid and so visceral. And I looked out um, the front door of my like little dorm and the door was open and sunlight was streaming through. And I thought, I was like, holy shit, did I just like literally sleep for six hours? And who opened my door? Like, this is so weird. And I was looking out the door to the, like, meadow and the trees. um, And these three little butterflies, like, flew past the threshold of the door. And suddenly, Vishwaji, my teacher, is standing at the foot of my bed. That's really interesting. Do I want to build my fire to burn people? Or do I want to build a fire to lead them through the darkness? And to warm them when they need when they need heat, right? And so that translates as when I speak to people that I'm not burning them. You know, when I speak to people, I'm sharing my inner fire as a light. My family might be right. All right, Yogi Zorananda. I'm just as bad as Sam sometimes with the last names. Please tell us your last name, Zorananda. It is Glamochlia. Glamochlia. See, now now that you said it, I can probably nail it. All right, Zorananda. Yeah, there we go. Glamochlia. So, yeah, welcome, man. Thanks for joining us today. We, we've talked a little bit before. I've had John Zero with Sam. Had some really awesome conversations with him. And I'm looking forward to getting into it today. First things first, what was the first indication that something wasn't the way you were being told, right? You're growing up, 
what was the first thing that kind of piqued your interest? Like, hmm, maybe these uh, this isn't adding up. The mainstream isn't isn't true. So I got into a plethora of conspiracies pretty much all at once, like JFK assassination, you know, 9-11, just like the typical ones. But I think what really kind of like spurred my imagination around uh, something more to life was when I was a child learning about Atlantis. And I have this like really specific memory of being with my dad watching like a news program where they're talking about Atlantis on TV and it just immediately sparked something in me um, of like a curiosity. And I remember asking him what that was and him just simply telling me, Oh, this is like suppose lost civilization. And even on the news program, it was just riddled with doubt and um, just like obscuring whether or not it would actually be real. And then from there, I just found that after specifically listening to Jedi mind tricks and really getting into like underground hip hop, that it just like opened this floodgate of researching everything that I could about conspiracies regarding. Yeah. Just like MK ultra and uh, a lot of like the kind of like, you know, deep state, um, like CIA and FBI operations and stuff and, and how that led me into really questioning what happened with nine 11 and with JFK assassination. And what I really wanted to focus on though, when I was learning all that is like, what is the like underlining kind of like spiritual like motive in it and just like in jedi mind tricks it's there's this emphasis of a spiritual war right so i really went down into understanding like what this like spiritual war is and um but really like over the last like kind of 13 years yeah say it again no, I, it's fine. I, I was just going to say the Jedi mind tricks, you know, their music infuses this kind of narrative of conspiracy, spirituality, like you said, almost like a spiritual warfare. He kind of lays it out. And to me, it was always in a hint kind of clue kind of way, like it wasn't all there. And I had to kind of from that piece of information go and look further you know and i think Mm -hmm. you and i relate there we discussed that on instagram that you know we both are fans of jedi mind tricks i think that's awesome man because it really it was a huge uh piece of the puzzle for me listening to that music it's funny (laughs) i was just going through different rap uh albums and somehow uh jedi mind tricks and immortal technique made it in there with all these like jay-z and nas albums and and those were the ones i listened to the most was the jedi mind tricks and the immortal technique stuff you know i was just trying to i, I think it was like limewire days when you could just steal albums and albums and albums of music so <laughs> those were the ones that i i liked the best um mm-hmm. But yeah, man, that's awesome. So it started a little bit with the underground rap. How old were you then when you started getting into that? I was uh, like 16, 17. And it's cool. pretty funny because it was introduced to me from 
like a high school friend, we would, there's like a group of us that would at lunchtime, like go out to like Wendy's or wherever, right. For fast food. And he put on the heavenly divine album and he was like, man, you guys should check this out. Like these are some sweet, like Christian rappers. And I was like, yeah, that's pretty dope. And then when I started getting into it, I was like, oh man, these are not Christian rappers. <laughs> like these guys are super intense. And the particular song that like got me into everything was the winds of war on the psychosocial album. And I just remember the moment that like Vinnie Paz says the Emerald Tablets of Thoughty and the Holy Tablets, like Moses, the blackening of roses will send you to the edges of the land. The Emerald Tablets of Thoughty Atlantean. That just, that was it. And I remember just like immediately Googling it and then finding like the full like book online. And then that just catapulted me. And then as soon as I read that, I was like, oh my God, what else is there? Yeah. You know, and it just spiraled on this journey of just scouring the internet for as much as I could. Yeah. And those were the days when you could actually find a lot of really cool stuff on the internet. It's funny because these things kind of come at you in fragments at first and it takes like really listening to the lyrics to, to get what they're saying in these songs. I think that album psychosocials top three rap albums for me of all time, that one about tan the coming of yeah. tan i love yeah. that song with the the intro from this guy and I, I remember hearing that guy's voice on an ancient aliens show and the two kind of got connected and i had a similar moment of like let me go investigate this further you know and yeah man that's that's some deep stuff yeah so that guy is riley martin and i yeah yeah, yeah. and so i like really investigated him and his story and it inspired something really particular in me that um, put me on to this like journey of seeking to experience my higher self. Because, you know, the, the whole story with Riley is that he, when he was a child, he was taken onto a spacecraft and through like successive hypnosis, uh, sessions he was able to actually unlock these memories of onto the spacecraft and then uncovering this full working memory of like not only being on the spacecraft but then flying throughout the cosmos going to saturn and like finding this little planet in the rings of saturn and actually experiencing tan who is his higher self and the whole like world that they live on so i and I have a story, if you don't mind, I can get into right now about this. Um, so I asked myself, could I do a hypnosis session with someone and meet my higher self? And so I started looking for local hypnotists and I found one in particular named Padman Palay. So I met this uh, hypnotherapist named Padman Palay and... I just simply told him that I wanted to do a past life regression because I wanted to learn something about my past life. And typically when he did past life regressions, you know, it's to heal something or to overcome something. Um, but in my mind, I wanted to meet my higher self and I didn't know what that was going to look like. I just, 
you know, firmly believed in myself that it was going to happen. So he puts me into the, into the hypnosis and the process was like closing my eyes, relaxing my body, seeing myself walk through this path and come up to a door and the door would open and there'd be this like blinding white light. And as I stepped through uh, into the white light, suddenly my whole experience changed and I was what looked like a kind of medieval small town where the, the, the town center was a circle and it had a fountain in the middle and shops around the perimeter and then a road that led up to the castle. And I intimately knew who I was and what I was doing there. And it turned out that I was a guard for the king and the king had let us all go like me and our little like troop because the church came in and took over the role of, of defending the kingdom. And I ended up having like this like deep resentment and like deep, like anger. And I could feel it viscerally in this past life. And Padman would ask me frequently like, okay, what's going on? What do you see? And I was a part of this like underground like sect of guards where we were like planning a coup to basically expose the church and to show the king that they, you know, the kingdom is being manipulated and taken over. And um, what ended up happening is my best friend in this past life kind of ratted us out and we were all assassinated and the crazy thing about this dream or not the stream, but this past life was that I was killed in the past life. And I like fully experienced being stabbed in the chest and dying and leaving my body. And there was this moment where I was inside my house, the guards from the church killed me and I was leaving my body and the image of the past life was fading away into this white light. And what I didn't realize is that I stopped talking and I stopped like explaining things to Padman. And as I turned into the light, there was this like blinding light that was in front of me. And I shift my focus into peripheral and there was these seven beings of light standing in front of me. And right at that moment, Padman was like, Oh, what's happening in the past life. And suddenly the past life came back and I can see the guards taking the body away. And I was like, Oh uh, yeah, I was killed. And the, the guards are taking my body away and the past life faded away again. And I was standing in front of these beings of light. And one of them pointed at me and said, you are one of us standing here. And Padman again tried to um, like ask, okay, what's going on? And I cut him off and I was like, that's not important right now. I'm standing in front of these seven beings of light and they're telling me that I am one of them. And right then and there, he cut me off. Like he snapped his fingers and brought me back. And I was like, I looked at him and I was like, what are you doing? Why did you do that? 
And he was calmly, he said, in my 25 years of doing this, I've never had this experience and I have no idea like what, what is going to happen. So I had to bring you back out of your own safety. And then just at that moment, just all of my intention and like I, everything I thought about with Riley Martin and like some other cases just like flooded into my mind. I was like, Oh my God, it fucking worked. Like, <laughs> absolutely. This, wow. You know, and, and just think about it, like, I was 19 years old at that time. And, you know, to be like really new at meditation and, you know, to suddenly be like, kind of like thrown into this experience uh, really changed my life. And that was like one of the pivotal moments that was like, okay, there's way more to this life and this world than we will ever know. And it just sparked this um, like intention within me to like share this and to seek it more. Right. So that's what was a huge driving force to get into yoga and, and all that stuff. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. No, that, I mean, that's a really, that's interesting. When you mentioned the part about um, you, you getting killed in your past life regression, it, it almost brought to mind things I've read from different indigenous tribes who take peyote or another hallucinogenic or not even sometimes they can uh, induce this, you know, with drumming and, and sweat lodges or, or other circumstances that push your body to its limits. Right. And, they talk of once passing past those physical thresholds, going into an astral realm where your body, your physical body is killed and you, you almost like you see it. Right. Have you have you heard about this? I think this is coming from kind of like a, a book by Michael yeah. Horner and uh, the, the idea. And I think there's also stuff about this in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. But the idea that like your physical body was kind of being killed and it, I know this was under the circumstances of past life regression, so it might not have been the same, but do you think that that's almost the experience you're being given? Like, Hey, this was you in your past life. This is, you know, your mission. Here's an example of it. And then at the end, you know, you have this moment of realization, like, Holy shit, my higher self is much greater and grander than I ever expected. Yeah. Well, I think these experiences are um, like inadvertent catalysts, right? So whether or not the past life is actually a past life, I think the way that the intelligence of these like extra dimensional or multidimensional or higher dimensional beings is that they need some kind of medium outside of your kind of like concrete mundane world to interface with you. And so because I was planting the seeds in my consciousness of meeting what could be my kind of higher self is that there were these initiations that were taking place leading up to it. So, you know, leading up to that experience, I was doing meditations, I was having kind of little profound experiences and I was already used to doing some psychedelics like mushrooms and, uh, you know, I was smoking cannabis and really preparing myself in a way so that when I literally changed my like normal day-to-day reality of like 
meeting this random little like yogi elder like hypnotherapy guy to usher in this experience for me that it was all almost like designed. And even though maybe my like physical mind couldn't really fully wrap itself around it, the hypnosis was a part of being able to kind of turn that off. So then I can have that experience of meeting my higher self through the past life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it sounds like to me, like you you went from, you know, neophyte to adept, and now you're, you're, you're reaching the stages of a hierophant, you know, like this kind of person who's, who's passed on to the, the third level where you're actually starting to help other people reach this adept stage, right? How, how do you feel about that? Do you think that this kind of progress that you've made is sort of your own unique experience? Or do you think there's a sort of uh, path that we all have that kind of reflects or uh, is similar to what you've done? Yeah, I, th- I think it is a shared experience. And it will show up uniquely for each person. And the potency of it is going to be dependent on how much actual focus and energy you're putting into it, where if your belief system around phenomenal experiences is kind of watered down in a sense, and it's naturally a little bit limited, then the like the vibrancy of that synchronicity is going to be toned down and and it's going to be manageable so that, you know, like sports that you watch or whatever these elements that you subscribe to aren't going to be so overtly challenged. Cause I think when you have really high powered, like phenomenal experience, you question everything. You're like, why the hell do I watch like the NFL? Like, why do I watch mainstream media? Why do I care about politics? Why do I care about this? Why do I care about that? Because you're brought into such a potent other world where in that world, none of that exists. And even the beings in that world will be like, what the fuck are you doing with all that shit? <laughs> you know? Yeah, man, absolutely. I I mean, that's like the whole title of the show is like, I feel like I've I've kind of made this transition into another reality and left the people around me behind, so to speak, because, you know, I'm interested in all these things, these books, these ideas, and you go to share it with the people you, you spend the most time with. And they're like, what are you talking about? That doesn't make sense. You know, that that's completely been my experience. I mean, I'm never, I've never been one for sports. So maybe I was born for this, but you know, I, I think that for the majority of people, once you have this kind of spiritual experience, you realize how attached to the material our culture is, you know, our culture revolves around materialism and, you know, human 
feats of, of strength and, and these things that are all kind of really rooted in the material, like intelligence only matters to people for as much as it can earn you or as much as you can produce material wise, you know, like all these engineers and scientists and whatnot, but you've taken a, a very different path. And that's something we, we love on this podcast. It's kind of the idea behind this podcast is to in interview folks who've taken a different uh, path in life rather than the one that society or school or your community set for you. So how did this, I mean, so the hypnotherapist, he really became somewhat of a mentor to you, it seems, or or was this just a one-time experience? Did, did this start the, the path towards becoming a yogi? So, yeah, so that's... Um was just like a one-time thing with him. I did come back to him again uh, several years later for a different experience um, uh, with just working on some belief systems around money and, and finances. But after having that experience, I knew that everything that I was learning about meditation and um, and like, particularly around the chakras and like the energetics of things that going on the internet wasn't enough that it was time for me to start seeking out more of these kind of experiences. And I knew that yoga out of all of them uh, was going to be a path that would show me the, kind of enlightenment that I was seeking. Cause at that time uh, that was like the big key word for me was like, okay, I want to experience what enlightenment is. Cause seeing those beings of light was obviously um, I started just really um, investigating and investing my time in, in practicing more yoga, which unfurled more and more synchronicities of traveling to Thailand for a yoga school, um, meeting who my teacher is right now. The, that training and my teacher are really the, the, the things that uh, really shape who I am as a yogi. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was really amazing because um, in hypnosis with Padman, I got him to meet my teacher Vishaji and uh, really establish this uh, like interconnection and synchronicity around what I did when I was 19 and what I was moving through in my path of yoga. Absolutely. So where, where was this, uh, this school that you went to? So I did a 200 hour yoga teacher training here in Edmonton, where I'm from in Alberta, Canada. And, uh, it was at a studio called Prana and it was interesting because I did a three, like a 30 day yoga or a 30 day sunrise yoga challenge. And I saw this little like poster 
of this like super fucking flexible yogi with his feet literally in his stomach and like smiling and his hands up. And <laughs> I, I just immediately knew upon seeing his picture that like, I've got to meet this man. And so the following year, so that was in 2011. So the following year in 2012, I ended up doing teacher training. And it was in that week that uh, the initiation that we received into the Akanda Yoga lineage that he teaches, that I essentially am a, like, am a Kanda yoga teacher. And that is the lineage that I practice and teach and will continue to teach. Um, and it, it's really because, of, um, on a, on one of the mornings of that week that he was there. So it was a Thursday morning and we typically wake up at like 5 a.m. and uh, do a yoga class at around six. And it was a Thursday morning that I woke up and I wasn't feeling too well. And I thought to myself, well, I'm just going to not go to class and have a chill day. And cause I'm, I'm not feeling well. I'm like super sore. I just, I just want the day to uh, just like recalibrate. And so I fell back asleep and almost upon immediately falling asleep, I woke back up in my bed, but I didn't realize that I woke up into a dream because it was so lucid and so visceral. And I looked out um, the front door of my like little dorm and the door was open and sunlight was streaming through. And I thought I was like, holy shit, did I just like literally sleep for six hours and who opened my door? Like, this is so weird. And I was looking out the door to the like meadow and the trees. Um, and these three little butterflies like flew past the threshold of the door. And suddenly Vishuji, my teacher is standing at the foot of my bed and he's wearing white robes and he's like glowing soft white light. And I just look at him and he puts out his hand and just says, come and I think for a moment and I straight up still think that I just woke up and that this is real. And he's literally standing at my bed and I say, no, Vishuji, I'm not, I'm not feeling well. I can't, I can't go. I'm just, I can't go to your class. And I just automatically went into that narrative that I had um, when I woke up before the class. And then he just put his hand down and then I woke up and I like jolted out of bed and I was like, holy shit, that was a dream. Like the door was closed. It was like, I checked my clock. It was like five minutes to 6am. And I'm like, wow, I just had a full on visceral lucid dream of my teacher, like coming to me and telling me to like go out into wherever, like who knows. Right. And later on in that day, I like uh, caught up to him as he was going to his dorm room. And I asked him like, Vishuji, I had this like really strange dream that you like came to me and like 
told, wanted me to come with you out into this like world. Like, did you do that? And he just laughed and was like, no, I just noticed you weren't in class. And I was wondering how you were doing. I just was, uh, you know, hoping <laughs> that you were well. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? You just thought of me and were hoping that I was well. And it created this full on lucid dream of me seeing you. And it was that moment that I knew that like this man is like legit powerful and that there's this connection. And ever since then, I've just, um, you know, he's essentially been my guru or my teacher and it's been really great learning from him. That's fantastic, man. And that's kind of why I asked, you know, where this happened, because a lot of people get this uh, misconception that you got to go, you know, travels to some exotic place to have this kind of experience. And you'd be surprised at how many enlightened people you can find in your own, you know, neighborhood or community or city or even state. But um, that's fantastic, man. So then you have a guru. What kind of propelled you because i know there was some synchronicities around us talking um were you already you know having this book in mind before you got on to doing podcasts or when how did this book uh, emerge from the ether yeah so in 2015 i actually started teaching the meditation in the book Um, just out of my home. I was living in this like beautiful, like three-story kind of historical home with six roommates. And we were all um, other yoga teachers or healers or, you know, um, massage therapists. And I came up with this meditation just through my first like few years of um, like, traveling and doing yoga and really committing to the practice and the philosophies, learning a lot about the chakras and the energetic systems. And so the first iteration of future life progression was really tied to the chakras and just exploring each chakra individually, exploring the psychology of each one and um, working it so that you would interface with this version of yourself in a particular chakra that embodied the like wholeness of that chakra. So say um, for example, like your root chakra that has to do with like stability and security and family um, ancestry. And, and so then I would do this guided meditation of overcoming an obstacle of like a vast Canyon and having to build a bridge over the Canyon. And on the other side is this future self of yours. who is just radiating the strength and stability and grounding. And what I found over the like first couple of years of doing this is that I really needed um, like more structure. And so I ended up going to India in 2016 for the 300 hour teacher training with my teacher And I was reading a book called The Kabbalah and the Power of Dreaming uh, by uh, Catherine Schoenberg. And it was from reading her book and doing the teacher training that I was finally inspired to create a particular modality. And so each chapter in my book explores 
each one of those modalities. And so, uh, the exercises and the meditations, um, started to formulate after I got back from the teacher training and I really starting to investigate like, okay, if this is something that I want to commit to, and this is something that I really want to show to the world, I've got to put it together in a package because when I was reading Catherine's book, hers is really about um, like the school of imaging and how to navigate your uh, like waking life and dream life through these really particular quick um, meditations and exercises. And so that inspired me to um, package together what I had in these kind of exercises and meditations, but with the uh, intention to meet your future self. And as I was going through that, I continue to evolve in my practice of, you know, doing really powerful breath work, doing uh, really powerful, lengthy meditations that what I uncovered is that the foundation of all this work was how to deeply connect into the heart and in a way where there's this intelligence that streams through and it plays a part in intuition. It plays a part in creativity and uncovering this purpose that we have in our life. And um, yeah, so in the last like five years from, yeah, 2016 to now, I did everything that I could to um, create the foundation of the practice dive into all of the research of the power of the heart and then the kind of secret to all of this, which I think is the endogenous DMT um, that, you know, we're starting to get a glimpse of through like Rick Strassman and, and other scientists. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> now, <laughs> that brings a lot of questions to mind. I'm going to put the questions on hold for a second because I think we're getting into some really interesting stuff. I want to bring up the name of the first chapter in the book. And I will say that the chapters are kind of like uh, steps almost right through, through this process. So the book is a very practical book, I'll say. And you're very generous to send me the the PDF. I shared it with Sam. I also shared it with uh, Talray here. And uh, the first chapter is called Recognition. Now, at first glance, you might think he's saying recognition, but no, uh, recognition has, uh, you know, some importance as to why you did that. Can you explain why uh, you emphasize recognition and, and what that means for the, the first step into to getting through with this? Yeah. So when I first started going into my heart, there were a few things that I started to notice in just how my brain was behaving. And I, I needed a term and I needed a way of describing and explaining um, just like the function of how the heart was showing me a kind of guidance. And 
I use the word recognition and, and uh, kind of shifted it into recognition to start to describe um, a possibility that the, the roles of the left and the right brain uh, hemispheres of the brain aren't static. And it's, obviously not something that we're familiar with and understanding how like uh, neurology works and how the brain functions because in typical literature that the left brain is strictly for logic, language, reasoning, cognition. The right brain is specifically for um, creativity, music, feeling um, and like flow state. And so what I started to um, investigate in my own experience of doing these meditations is that there is this possibility of a role reversal in that the consciousness and the driving force in the left brain becomes subconscious and that the right brain becomes the driving force of consciousness. And how that made sense to me is that when I was going into my heart and I was doing these meditations is that the talking mind would shut off. Right. So I would no longer have this like um, critical narrative of whatever I was envisioning where if anyone listening right now were to just close your eyes and try to be silent for even 10 seconds, your left brain is just going to, continue on. Right. And so what I was finding is that when I'd first go into my heart and I would establish an anchoring in my heart, that then the left brain would go on silent or it would go mute. And then suddenly this like whole capacity for visualization would gear up and I could clearly visualize, um, uh, these like automatic visions and I would see like um, my, my life and it would bring up past memories and it would bring up all these like visions within me um, where I started to just consider that there's this possibility that using the heart, we could actually change the kind of neurology of the brain and in how it functions. And so it seems complicated. However, the way that I started to understand it is like, well, the left brain is a compartmentalizing uh, like thing. So whenever we bring in information into the left brain or bring in information, it's going to store it in different kind of compartments and there's really no communication between the two. Right. Um, so what I thought was, well, when I'm going into my heart, what could be happening is that that function of compartmentalization becomes interconnected and it becomes a fabric. And so the images and all the information from the right brain can then be brought in to those compartments and streamed through. And so then you can have a visceral experience of 
a communication or a guidance that's coming from an intelligence that's deep within the heart. And that became the foundation to how I actually do the guided meditations. And I've had people tell me the wildest things in the meditations where I had no control of what they're experiencing, but they had this like in real time unfolding of images into a kind of like a movie. And they were just kind of taken on this journey. And I would ask them like, okay, were like, did you hear any like noise? Like, did you hear any like interrupting thoughts? And every time it was a no. And so that to me was a good sign that I'm onto something here and that it can be utilized in particular ways. And so one way is like the cord cutting um, exercise, right? And I set that up purposely to be the starting point to how you can make this shift in your hemispheres. And um, that way, the anchoring into your heart can be more and more established. And the overall journey of that like internal world can then be experienced unperturbed or unaffected by a random thought like, you know, oh shit, did I feed my dog today? You know? <laughs> yeah. So it really comes down to preparation, right? So really that chapter is like, there are these safeguards in place naturally that we're not just going to slip into a deep meditation. And the way that we can really go about um, how to approach meditation is to understand that there are necessary steps in the initial process. So sitting down and just closing your eyes and just kind of sitting there isn't going to be enough. And because what's going to happen is that your brain is going to stay in that kind of static beta state. And it's going to stay in this loop of stories and thoughts and, and mind chatter. And so what yoga is essentially doing is allowing your body to be prepared for the shift in brain state to then start to expand on that new brain state that you're shifted into, which is going to bring about the spontaneity of some kind of communication. And in this case, that communication is a deliberate desire for your future self, right? And so doing, say, like the sun salutations, like a short practice and uh, breathing techniques, and then finding yourself in a seated position where all of that work has slightly changed your physiology to then be able to sit and settle in the silence. Because what I find typical in uh, just the classes that I've taught, because I've been teaching yoga for like students who um, just for whatever reason, 
uh, unbeknownst to themselves, they just can't get into deep meditation. And the reason why is because of fidgeting that if you cannot just absolutely sit silently and sit completely still to your peripheral nervous system is a trigger back into beta state. And so what you need is to be completely still so that it signals to the body to divert energy from the peripheral nervous system into the central nervous system. And this is what's really going to be key. The fidgeting thing, I mean, that has always been an issue for me, I think, uh, is just trying to be as still as possible. But I've never heard that explanation before of diverting energy from your peripheral nervous system to your central nervous system. I mean, that's a that's really interesting. I'm grateful to to hear it that way because, I mean, that kind of adds the component that my unfortunately logical uh, biased mind sometimes needs to have like the kind of material explanation for it, even though, you know, I'm so against the materialism thing. I think that has always been a barrier for me is, uh, is actually having kind of confidence in my non physical experiences. What would you say? Have you had students like that who've, who've had those kind of, uh, similar experiences of like um, what would you say to to me to kind of maybe give me some advice like uh so i do feel like that's kind of been a barrier for me is like my my talking chattering side of my mind will be like kind of questioning the experience while it's happening you know taking me out of it yeah so the entire arc of, of a yoga class, so started from seating, doing some breathing techniques, leading up to a standing sequence that's starting to get heated, leading down back into seated, stretching, and then into Shavasana. So that whole process does something physiologically. So if we can take a step back and out of the egoic framework that all of that experience is going to make you stronger and more flexible that you turn into what's happening to your nervous system and what's happening to happening to your endocrine system and what's happening to your circulation is that there's an overall shift in your neurology that when you go to sit down to meditate, you are noticeably entering a meditative state. And so from that part point on, what is important is something called pratyahara. So what I find missing in the kind of mainstream yoga world is there's this hyper focus on handstands and backbends and crazy like shit that is like contortionist, right? In the philosophy of yoga, which is um, Patanjali's uh, Yoga Sutras and um, Ashtanga Yoga, there's a part called Pratyahara, which means sense withdrawal. And so what sense withdrawal is, is when you've done your practice 
and you're in meditation is that you are consciously magnetizing and pulling the energy from your peripheral nervous system into your central nervous system so that the engagement with the outside world is shut off. But your awareness of it is actually amplified. And so the experiences that I've had in, in deeper meditations is that when I've done my practice and I'm seated in meditation and I'm bringing my consciousness down to my heart that I'll have my hands kind of clasped and not in any particular mudra or anything. I just have my hands together and I start to feel like I can no longer tell which hand is which, and they start to meld together and there's this kind of tingling sensation. And then I just allow that to over take my entire body where I, I can't tell which leg is which I can't tell which arm is which. And, and suddenly my association with my body just stops, just starts to cease. And it's at that point where there's this natural kind of function of feeling that I'm getting smaller and smaller and I'm going deeper and deeper. And at a certain point, suddenly it'll switch and I start getting bigger and bigger. And at that point, I can actually see around me and I can see that I'm outside my body and I can see that I'm expanding to the size of my room that I'm in. That I'm like, I'm going out of the roof. And I can see the streets. And then it gets to the point where those two movements of going inwards, smaller and smaller, and then bigger and bigger, they flip in each other. And I can no longer tell the difference of going in smaller and out bigger. And there's just this totality of expansion. And that to me, that is meditation. The beginning stages of sitting and breathing and going, trying to quiet the mind, that is not meditation. And so it's challenging to say that because there's, all this information on the benefits of meditation. So the benefits of, you know, just sitting quietly and getting 10 minutes in of listening to some soothing music and coming out of it and being like, Oh wow. Yeah. I feel much calmer, but in the traditional sense of yoga and the traditional teachings of why you do that, why you seek pratyahara, why you seek dharana and dhyana and samadhi. And, you know, those dharana is concentration and dhyana is meditation. So in Ashtanga yoga, in the eight limbs, not the Ashtanga yoga of Patabi Joyce of some guy walking around with a stick and beating people and, you know, forcing them into these crazy postures and these like Ashtanga series one and two. The original Ashtanga is Yama, Niyama, Asana, Pranayama, Pratyahara, Dharana, Dhyana, Samadhi. And so Dhyana meditation is one of the last steps. And so you really need that over arc of the do's and don'ts spiritually of the yamas and niyamas of non-harm and non-stealing and controlling your energy and truthfulness and cleanliness and, and all of that. Then you have your asana practice and getting into the preparation physically for opening up 
tightness in your hips and in your spine and in your shoulders, then the work of pranayama and the subtlety of moving, starting to move the energy within you, and then into pratyahara and concentration and dhyana. So that is what I investigated in yoga is that I took that seriously. And so I, I spent a lot of time with the yamas and niyamas where I dedicated myself months at a time to being like, okay, I'm going to focus on ahimsa and non-harm and I'm going to practice non-harm to the fullest. I'm not even going to squish mosquitoes. I'm not even going to step on ants. I'm not even going to think harmful thoughts or say harmful things to people. And I went through each one. And I think that's really important in, in developing um, how you can actually release and let go of the physical world because the yamas and yamas are going to teach you the distractions of the world. It's going to teach you the truths of, oh, everything that's happening, I don't have to be a part of. And, yeah. the, way that, and the way that I don't have to be a part of it is I can sit, I can go into myself, and I can unplug. And where do I go, right? And it's bliss and joy and, you know, and enlightenment inevitably. But I think most importantly, the bliss and the joy of divinity. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm blown away because that's the type of superhuman yoga that I truly think is the, the potential for everybody. I think that this is the kind of sp- path to spiritual enlightenment that we all deserve but unfortunately there exists this kind of commercialized version like you say that really is more like contortionism and acrobatics than it is you know um, raising your consciousness so to you yogi i say damn dude you're like you're like a renegade yogi man i love it this is awesome this reminds (laughs) me of like uh like almost like uh kind of the stuff uh, Matt Belair was talking about uh, when he was on Tinfoil Hat and his podcast is really great. He goes into a lot of this kind of stuff. You know, he's an athlete. So this kind of mind, body, soul connection, I think is so important. And when you're saying like, you need to open up this, uh, open up the tightness, I'm almost imagining like you're sitting there and these chakra glands are kind of protecting themselves, right? Your body's tight, you know, but as you loosen up and open up, those glands have more room to express themselves and and emit this kind of higher frequency of light. Now, when you go through the, uh, the different um, practices there, I mean, they're all, I, I'm going to struggle to try to repeat them, but for the sake of reminding you, the samadhi and the uh, you know, so on. Would would these be corresponding to each chakra or are these more like, uh, you know, are they, is there a linear path through these or are they just kind of branches of one tree? Like how, how should one go through these? Because I know you said there was one that was kind of like the end all uh, of the whole group of them. Yeah. So one way to approach yoga is that it is, an entire system of methodology, right? So um, you have a multitude of yoga practices, right? So you have a shtanga yoga, like I was describing, which is a 
systematization of yoga that was developed by a particular person named Patanjali. Um, and that was like 2000 plus years ago. Um, and so when, when we think about the chakras, the chakras actually come out of the tantric yoga um, methodology. Um, and so what's important to understand is within all the different kinds of yogas, right? So you have like Hatha yoga, you have Raja yoga, you have uh, Bhakti yoga, Kundalini yoga. Um, and what I did personally is I investigated it all. Um, and what is typical is that people will usually go into one and basically that's their home base. You know, you have something like Kundalini yoga where you have the Yogi Bhajan lineage of these like Snatnam, Kar, Gurmurk kind of people where they wear all white, they wear the turban, they do the funky, you know, like movements. Um, but when it comes to um, really wanting to investigate the system authentically. Um, Ashtanga yoga really has nothing to do with the chakras, right? So Ashtanga yoga is really particular in um, Patanjali's kind of teaching of it, right? But that doesn't mean that you can't bring them together, right? Um, and cause that's essentially what I did. Right. So I would say, you know, say if I'm working on my third chakra, Manipura, right. Your solar plexus or your power or your seat of power and individuality and fire. Right. And I would say, okay, if I'm going into my center of, of personal power, how do I uphold ahimsa? So how do I uphold non-harm? Okay. And so I would, I would turn it into a kind of analogy or metaphor. I was like, okay, if I had a fire, right? So Manipura is connected to the element of fire. Do I want to build my fire to burn people? Or do I want to build a fire to lead them through the darkness and to warm them when they need, when they need heat? Right. And so that translates as when I speak to people, that I'm not burning them. You know, when I speak to people, I'm sharing my inner fire as a light, right? I'm sharing it as a way to bring warmth and compassion, right? And likewise for any other chakra, right? So say if we even go into the into the second chakra, Svadhisthana, the chakra of passion and creativity and sexual energy, right? Say if, um, you know, you're attracted to a woman, right? And she's giving you signs that she's not really attracted to you that way, right? And you say, okay, how do I apply truthfulness, satya, right? How do I apply truthfulness to this moment? It can be to be honest to that woman. You know what? I'm attracted to you. And I can use this sexual energy creatively for us to collaborate on something, right? It could be music, it can be art, it can be a school project where then that sexual energy isn't forced 
into this desire and this idea of needing it to be expressed sexually, that then it opens up into a new possibility, right? So that's how I started to explore how to bring these two together. And it's really led me on a beautiful path because I think when I I really started to investigate it that way, it opened me up to new people. It opened me up to traveling the world and, and doing all these things because I didn't stick to this rigidity of how I think I like am supposed to act like the way that society should. Right. So yoga really helped with uncovering this like morality and this way of living that nothing really else in the world, you know, in any religion could, could have shown me. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I can relate to a lot of that, man. You know, your book is a great way of not only showing someone else the steps, but also highlighting how it's helped you get to this point. You know, it's a very personal kind of book. You share your experiences. Two things that you highlight are the heart awareness meditation and the dream awareness meditation. So did those come from uh, one of these uh, yoga practices or particular disciplines or is this something you you crafted from your own experience yeah i definitely crafted it from my own experience and also with the with the support of you know what i was learning on my journey and how those two meditations came about was the realization that i can create my own meditation Right. I, I spent many years doing other people's meditations and I, and I spent many years studying other people's stuff. And I just started to realize that what if like innately part of our purpose is to actually create our own meditations personally. And that the way to a more global enlightenment of individuals is in empowerment for people to go into themselves through their own modalities. Because what I've written in that book isn't going to work for everyone, right? It's, it's going to work for, I think, some more people who are more adept or more people that I can talk to to really flesh it out. Um, so I think that what I feel my purpose is through this book is to encourage people to go into their heart and you don't even have to do these meditations. Just simply going into your heart can uncover ways for healing that are going to be suitable for you that I have no control over. And I think that's an important point because it seems like we're really coming to a turning point on this whole like guru situation right? Where there's a lot of spiritual leaders that are getting caught doing just heinous things to people. And this like trust around believing and following someone is really largely dwindling. And so what I started to realize is like, well, I don't want to be that way. I don't want to be seen and known as someone that's manipulating and taking advantage of people. So what can I do? And the answer that came was, well, teach self-mastery and point to the place where that self-mastery comes from and that it's up to the individual 
to go as deep as they possibly can. And so that's what I did. And what came out of it was this book. And so I'm confident that more and more people can do that as well. And that doesn't necessarily mean people have to become yogis and, you know, do all these crazy meditations. It can be a baseball player. That's like, I'm going to go into my heart. And that is what uncovers how they can be even better at playing baseball or a plumber or an electrician or an actor, like you name it, just so that people can be in their life and who they are without having to join some crazy fucking cult and cut off their hair and lose everything just for this person to like do whatever the fuck they want with them. You know, it's like, I don't want to be a part of that. You know, I just want to be like, Hey, here's how you go into your heart. Have fun. <laughs> Absolutely, man. I, I love it, man. I, I have one question that kind of came up because the end of your book, the last chapter is about uh, kind of like, microdosing right microdosing your body and i as someone who smokes cannabis every day i've always wondered you know is cannabis helping is it harming as far as the spiritual mind body soul connection and i know there's um certain sects or groups of people in hinduism or uh, india that practice you know, different spiritual beliefs with cannabis. Is that something you've experienced through, you know, your interactions with yoga? Is cannabis utilized in any yoga practices or or do you think it's something that uh, should be abstained from? Yeah. So earlier when you said I'm like this renegade yogi, (laughs) I really am in the sense that I started smoking weed when I was 12 and I still <laughs> smoke weed. I had like a, a period of like two years where I stopped because I, 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 I felt that it was kind of taking over my life and I just needed a break. And I developed this new relationship where I, I can say no to it and it's okay. And I can spend like a couple weeks, you know, now I smoke maybe like once a week and I'm, and it's totally perfect for me. Um, And I've had amazing meditative experiences with cannabis, like just mind blowing. Like I can, like, there's two stories that come to mind um, that uh, have really facilitated understanding like outer body experiences and really potent lucid dreaming and, and like self-induced past life regressions, you know? So like, I think it has its place, um, especially because we have a cannabinoid system, like nervous system in our brain, you know? So it's like, it's so easily integrated into our system. Um, And what I just would recommend is having like periodic, just cleansing periods where you're like, um, say for example, in, Ashtanga in like the in Ashtanga yoga and the Niyamas, you have something called tapas, which is like burning of karma. That's what it's kind of translated as, or like willpower. So you can be like, I'm gonna have a tapas where for a week I'm not gonna smoke weed. And what you might find is that in that period of having your body come back to like a homeostasis with your endocrine system and your hormones that when you smoke weed again, you have this heightened sensitivity and suddenly you're like, 
it just amplifies your experience of it. Right. Cause I find with smoking weed on a daily basis, suddenly like you'll be like, Oh, I need to smoke more. I need to smoke more. I need to smoke more. Um, where that like time away for it, suddenly you smoke like half as much and you're super high, but it's different and you're more sensitive to things. And I found that early on in my use of cannabis through my research with what it does to the body is that I developed a, an intention for spirituality with it. And so it really helped facilitate having really profound meditation. Uh, that's with it. it. That's exactly. I mean, you, you put it really well. I've always said it kind of wiped the slate clean and allowed my spiritual intuition to start guiding me because for the longest time I had this kind of reactive kind of philosophy because I had been raised with a Roman Catholic kind of only go to church on Sunday kind of religion in my family. And it just made me feel like, oh, well, this is all lies and there's no truth in this. So atheism must be the truth. And then when I, you know, smoked weed, not only did it kind of wipe that out of, you know, even being possible within the realms of possibility, not a chance anymore. But at that point, it was really shocking. You know, I, I had this experience. Not only did the world tell me like, oh, this plant's bad for you. It's illegal. All this stuff. It was proven wrong immediately, but it put me in touch with, I think, my higher self. But I'm curious to to know if there's a sort of, uh, if there's a practice within yoga that takes that into account or uh, like, is there a, a meditation that you've learned about that you can use while smoking or any like groups of yogis who, you know, use cannabis more than others? Cause I know there's like documentary, some footage of like these guys, they're all ash. They have ash all over them and they're like, Oh yeah, they smoke all the time, but the, you know, they're not really, asking any good questions they're just kind of treating them like a freak show you know yeah so those are the agori yogis got it and they see their path to alignment through extreme right so like eating the ash of dead people and carrying around a skull of their relative and like covering themselves with this ash and like eating their feces and like doing crazy things but the thing is is like that extreme is like so perturbed that yeah, like the documentaries just don't really do it justice. But to just go into your original question about yoga and cannabis that typically no, typically yoga is cleansing. So you, you don't want to, really be smoking, which is obviously contradictive to what I said, because I smoke cannabis and, um, you know, I'm a yogi. However, I see the, the use of cannabis through the lens of Tantra, which allows me to enjoy something that can be paired with the practice. And that will allow me to open up at a time where I may not be able to open up just without it. Cause I find that 
when I do smoke weed and I sit down to like stretch and get into my body and go into the feeling of everything, I just found that there's this like um, permission slip to go deeper um, where typically in a yoga class at the beginning of it, it's quite arduous and it's like, it's quite taxing and you kind of have to just like endure through it until finally you hit a point where your endorphins are flooding in and suddenly it feels good. And when you get to Shavasana, you're just like, Oh, and you just kind of lay down and all that ease comes in where if you smoke a little bit of cannabis, you're like almost immediately right into those endorphins and you're right into that, like, Oh, feeling like, wow, this feels great. And your and your body is just more receptive to opening up. Um, and, and it can be done even just simply like where, like just being seated on the ground with your legs straight forward and folding forward. And if you can't quite touch your toes, bend into your knees a little bit and, uh, you know, have a space between the floor and your knees and you just allow yourself to breathe. And, and you'll find that there's this like encouragement with the cannabis the cannabis is like yeah do this more yeah this is great okay now do another posture now do another posture where i find sometimes in the morning when i go to do my practice my mind is like oh i don't want to do this oh i'm so stiff oh i'm so sore right so that's where i think cannabis can actually be um, a great facilitator in really opening and and really accepting um, just the experience of the practice. Yeah. I've always, I mean, thought of this offhand, like I, I really experience a sort of rewiring effect. Like a lot of the things that would be hangups to most people or were hangups to me previously, I found joy and like a new inspiration to kind of tackle these problems after, you know, being high. And I've always tried to be an advocate for it because I never thought once that it was true that cannabis makes you stupid or any of the other stigmas that they put on it. I don't know if they have the same stigmas up there in in the great North, but down here where I live in new England, at least if you smoke, most people think you'll, you'll end up the rest of your life, just like a bum, you know, a loser. So I think this kind of message is, is important for everyone to understand but it's also important to, like you said, be responsible and, and have the ability to take breaks because you might find that you come back to it after a couple of weeks and you hit a whole new high. So that's that's pretty great, man. I mean, this whole conversation has been really stellar. I feel like you need to have your own podcast called Renegade Yogi and people should like call in with advice and you just like hit them with 10 minutes of of advice off the top of your dome. I don't know, just a, I, an idea. What do you think? <laughs> um, I've definitely had my mind on, on doing a podcast. It's definitely in the future. And the name Renegade Yogi is awesome. Like that's the thing I've been struggling <laughs> with. I have like a few names I'm going, I'm like, ah, I don't like that, but Perfect. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Definitely going to be the name of this episode, at least. So maybe yeah. that'll maybe that'll put the name out there in the ether, and and people will hear it and be like, "Oh, Renegade Yogi." Let me search that. Is that a podcast yet? But 
Yeah, yeah. this has been this has been a great conversation, man. I'm really I'm really inspired. Taylor, um, you, you got uh, something to, to add to that before we we close out here? I really do believe that, um, you know, the growth of yoga in our world and how um, over the last just like 100 years, how it's just just exploded that um, it's not going anywhere. You know, there's no way that um, it's going to be stopped. And um, I I really do feel that there's another like strong wave of yoga that's going to be coming out that really helps facilitate people into understanding that it's not demonic. It's not going to like open you up to, you know, possession and stuff like that. It's very much aligned to divinity. And the openness that's happening is an openness into a deeper part of yourself that the demonic and negativity can't touch that you actually like create this boundary and this field of protectiveness that, um, you know, is going to become more and more evident. And that's what I feel like really my purpose is in, in really being able to elaborate that, how it's, you know, shaped my life and how, you know, I don't have these weird voices of possession and these weird ideas of manipulation that's coming through. Like, you know, I'm going to try to use my book and use these things to start a cult. Like it's all, it's really all nonsense. And well, I'll tell I, you what, yeah. I, I agree with that a hundred percent. And that's, that's actually one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on in particular, because you know, this show, I, I'm open to every single opinion. I'm never gonna, yeah. you know, I'm never gonna say like, Oh no, we don't, we don't support that. But you know, unless it's hateful in any way. But, um, you know, past guest um, was talking to me and he comes from a very Christian perspective. And I know other folks like him, so I don't want to single him out. Uh, But there's this idea that there is this kind of uh, demonic thing and that, you know, Christianity is the only way and everything else is demonic. And I've always thought that was kind of a little extreme to say the least, you know, to be polite. But I will say that... um, let's not forget uh christ <laughs> disappeared for how many years where did he go he went to india he went to china and he came back with all these spiritual insights well i mean maybe he learned a couple things from the hindu and the buddhists and the the taoists that were in asia at that time for you know thousands of years this kind of stream of consciousness has existed and i'm one who who's more particular to the whole you know forgotten history kind of theory where our civilization like you said like we started with atlantis like we're we're all fragmented like this tower of Babel type thing where we all have the same kind of original culture, but it's been lost because we've all evolved through these separate, you know, divided cultures divided by geography, but now we're all coming back together. And I think that all religions, ultimately all spiritual faiths that aren't dogmatic and aren't political or aren't manipulative by some cult leader are ultimately leading you to that same truth, right? And, 
you know, there are going to be people who come around and use yoga for evil purposes, just like there are preachers who use the Bible for evil purposes. I mean, it doesn't take, you find a, a, a church in my town where they're taking half the money and putting it in the preacher or the, the father's pocket instead of putting it back in the community. I mean, there's a huge mega church in my town that uh, is doing just that, I think. But you know that you can throw that kind of accusation at any spiritual whatever because ultimately power comes from this kind of thing right and when you when you really learn enlightenment and, and find enlightenment you realize that this kind of power that that people seek is is low vibration you know and once you once you take this path towards self-mastery like you kind of hinted at and described very thoroughly um you'll find that it's it's really easy to to sort out the charlatans from the honest people you know like Mm -hmm. if you if you talk to a quote unquote guru for long enough if you have your own spiritual intuition you'll probably get a good reading on whether this person's trying to sell you something or not or trying to use you for something right because that's ultimately all it comes down to me and another podcaster i work with alex sakaris were joking that like if you have a guru eventually he's gonna want to bang your wife you know because that's (laughs) just that just seems to be the the trend but I think that's brilliant, you know, the idea that we need to be teaching people self-mastery because what is a guru? It's just someone who has put a lot of dedication into this, but they're not any different than you or I. They were born the same way, you know, they were a baby. They learned to stand and walk and all the things. So there's no different. There's no like people who are, are born great, maybe besides Bruce Lee, but I would say that, you know, these these type of things are very attainable for people and uh, it doesn't really matter how you find the path because ultimately all of these paths lead to the same truth. Yeah. And I, I definitely listened to the podcast um, with the fellow that you're talking about and I, and I loved it because of how much I disagreed with it (laughs) and like how much I was like, Oh man, I would love to like, like be in a conversation or like a debate with him and like just really flesh it out and not in a way of like proving right or wrong, but to show that like there are so many similarities between the teachings of Jesus and the Vedas. And um, I have a book particularly called the Holy Science by Swami Sri Yukteswar who does that perfectly. And he finds passages from the Vedas that are identical to the passages in the new Testament. And so where instead of casting these divisions where it's like, Oh no, 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 no. I have Jesus and Jesus will do everything for me. I don't need anything else. Right. And the way that I look at that is like, well, it's like having a piece of wood with a nail in it and a screw and you're told to remove the ha- the nail and the screw with a hammer, you know? And it's like, but you have a screwdriver sitting right there. Jesus is the hammer. Yoga is the screwdriver. And so why not equip yourself with all the necessary tools to do the job that is necessary? So I think Jesus Christ is very necessary in the realm of like prayer 
and finding solace in um, like compassion and this like narrative in Christianity where like same thing with Buddhism and Hinduism and yoga and, and so forth that instead of casting divisions where you, you are in your mode of Christianity and you're like, no, 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 none of these things are ever right. And only the son of God and only Jesus Christ is going to be my savior. Right. Where just through a little bit of an open mind and a little bit of curiosity, you can find that there are these similarities and that's where I find that yoga really helped and not just the practice, but the, the understanding of unity, right. To yoke and to unify is that when I look at Christianity, I want to find unity in its teachings and how it can help me. When I look at Buddhism, likewise, when I look at Islam, likewise, when I look at Shintoism or Taoism or Jainism, right. Um, and I, also studied all these in university. So that was really helpful for me to have an academic outlook of all these different religions. But yeah, I just think the, the whole narrative of twisting something into this like demonization and using a lens of a religion to look at another, right? So um, like example of like the, the snake in the Garden of Eden and how it uh, convinces Eve to eat this apple and it casts them out of Eden and it causes all this strife. And then you have that lens and you look at Kundalini Yoga and you said, oh, but there's a serpent that's coiled and that serpent represents the devil because in my book, the snake is represented, but it's not the same at all. The snake in Kundalini is a function. It has nothing to do with allegory. It has nothing to do with a figure, a demon or anything. It's literally a function that the energy rises. And so when you can switch the lens and you can look at the literature and you can look at the information through that um, modality, it starts to make sense in a totally different way. And and I, I think that's really really important, especially for um, like Christians, because I grew up a Christian. And so um, I think it's, it's really important to be able to appreciate the, the totality of, of these experiences. I couldn't have said it better. That's great. I think that, you know, when you look at this whole realm of uh, conspiracy, it ultimately leads to spirituality and sometimes vice versa, right? And I think that some people just, you know, it, it's easier to stick to that framework. But yeah, I think all it takes is an open mind. And, um, and, and in no way are, is what we're saying negating any of the value you can get from Christianity. But at the same time, you have to not be so, uh, you know, <laughs> secular, right? We got to be able to take our hands and dip them into multiple uh, different baskets and, and see what the world has to offer us, you know, but I mean, this has been a stellar conversation, man. I definitely want to maybe set up a conversation where we can have some, uh, some debate about this stuff. Cause I do think there's definitely a lot of uh, folks who would be willing to raise that debate with you in a friendly way. And, uh, 
I'd be happy to partake. But um, yeah, man, this has been great. I think I need to do some poses and get my energy going before I do a podcast next time. But uh, Yogi, fantastic. Do you have any yes. closing words for our audience, any advice you would give? And finally, where can they find you and where can they get the book? Yes, we are in an amazing world that has a plethora of beauty and confusion and misinformation and truth. And we are bombarded every minute through social media and the news and whatever, right? And what is so helpful is the moment that you can just literally and simply close your eyes and feel your breath and know that whatever happens in the world, you cannot be in control. And when you find contentment in that knowing that you are not in control of the outside world and what you can be in control of is your contentment and your focus on your breath and your body and your being and your joy within that, that goes out into the world. And that's how we can all participate in the healing, in the growth and the advancement and pushing ourselves forward into a better place because you're literally doing it for yourself right in that moment. And with that, you can find me on Instagram, uh, zorananda.g. I have a website www.zorananda.com. You can find my book on there. You can find my album. I also have recordings of all of the meditations from the book as well. So when you get the book and you read through it, you want to actually receive the guidance through the meditations, go onto my website. And if you're not okay with the price, you can message me and I'm more than happy to send a discount code, whatever is going to help you get going and get to do the work. Absolutely. Yeah, man. Value for value. I think the uh, listeners out there should definitely go out and support. Yeah, absolutely. You know, keep, keep this kind of information going. Yeah, this is great. All right, Yogi. Thank you so much for joining us, man. And yeah, it's uh, been an honor. Thank you so much as well. Yeah, Evan, thanks for listening, folks, and have a great night. Mark is bananas. Crazy. Okay, this guy's losing his mind. I'm Don't listen crazy to him. for feeling so lonely. Follow us on patreon.com slash mftic. That's patreon.com slash mftic.